Hey, it's Bill Simmons. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably know about TheRinger.com, but I wanted to tell you about it anyway. It is sports. It is pop culture. It's tech. It's a little bit of national affairs. It's podcast. It's videos. It's multimedia. It's growing. MLB show. My name is Ben Lindbergh and I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com. Joined as always by my partner Michael Bauman, also of The Ringer. Hello, Michael. Hello. So there's still baseball. Five more years. Oh, yeah. I was like, well, not tonight. Like, it's, it's the middle of this. It's, you know, it's December. <laughs> no, but it's still out there in a larger sense. This, yeah. The sport is an active sport. And I am happy about that, although I'm sad that people won't get to hear our lockout podcasts because things things would have gotten wacky. Yeah. I mean, I told you I had like three or four good lockout ideas. I I was looking forward to... To banging the the drum for for organized labor, which you know, we'll we'll do a little bit with Jeff Pass and I did in my CBA column, which yeah, man, like they talked about <laughs> you went in, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's I you know I, I guess it would be well, I'm not going to allude to things that I I took out of the the column in the interest of good taste because this is going to be published too. But no, I was just alluding to the over-engineered nature of some of the things that like some of the things that were really simple and didn't work that well or you Mm -hmm. know and worked okay like you know free agent compensation in particular that they just made i just bailed i i didn't bother explaining (laughs) i spent like i spent like a solid hour looking at three different articles and trying to distill it down to like two paragraphs and what that meant and i would just fuck it you can (laughs) yeah i like that it was not it was not a cba explainer exactly you you picked out the important parts but then and when it came to the convoluted minutia, you just said, "Here's a link. Yeah, <laughs> you can you can click on that and read it <laughs> if you want to try to understand it." Yeah, that was we'll good. Figure, yeah, we'll figure it out in the the 2018 draft. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure I'll get used to it by then. And you led that column with a Boss Nass reference. Yeah, <laughs> which if uh, if anyone on the Ringer staff had been likely to lead something with a Boss Nass reference, I feel like it would have been me. But you just swooped in, and I like that. And I've you well know. I've got the original Star Wars trilogy pretty much memorized. We're gonna we're gonna talk about Rogue One, I'm sure, when when it comes out. I'm but. sure in more than one place. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like the lockout would have been our time to shine. We oh, had would a, have been great. A, I'm, we had a, a lockout roundtable pod planned. We were gonna talk to a hockey writer and a basketball writer and a football writer about what they did during the lockout to get some tips for our own lockout. But it'll have to wait five years at least. Yeah, not that a lockout was incredibly likely, but you know, no. somebody who I, it would have been exciting. Like you know, the the winter meetings are there are going to be trades, there are going to be signings, and like it's just we've done this already. I, you know, I've never covered a lockout. This would have been <laughs> yeah. this would have been fun. selfish, really. Absolutely, for, to, for... to deprive you and me of our first lockout as professional people. Yeah, I was looking forward to seeing you out on the picket line because yeah. uh, you were fired up, and if your Twitter puns are any indication. And you would have come up with some great slogans for the picket line. Mm-hmm. But now we'll never get to hear them. So you and I will talk to Jeff Passan later in this episode from Yahoo Sports about all the big changes in the CBA and, and the big takeaways from the CBA. So just a couple topics we want to get to before we talk CBA. Most of the day was consumed by Andrew McCutcheon trade rumors, and we waited as long as we could, hoping that something would either happen or not happen. 
happened before we recorded. It's now Ringer MLB show after dark as we talk, but we could not wait long enough. So we're just going to talk in general terms about an Andrew McCutcheon trade. So uh, what do you think about the idea of trading him now as opposed to waiting for midseason, let's say, or not doing it at all, which well, is also an option. <laughs> right. I guess the there's still a pretty decent chance that what we saw last year is was a fluke or he was hurt. And like, this is why the whole thing is so interesting to me because he's Andrew McCutcheon and he's right. a superstar and he's not that far removed from an eight way and MVP season. And he was below replacement level last year. Yeah. And how much of that is due to the defense metrics, which never really liked him. You know, he was still about a league average hitter, but like, there's a big, there's the difference between superstar and part-time DH that were contemplating here and names are getting bandied about like Victor Robles who's you know BP just called him the best prospect in the national system ahead of Lucas Giolito and they're talking about him in a leak that I'm almost certain came from the Pirates but still like you know this is what the rumor is right now Robles plus and that's just that just seems like a preposterous amount to give up for a guy who might just be done like it's not I don't know. I I just did a quick play index just to see up the middle guys since expansion who have had 30 win careers through age 30. So essentially the first half of a Hall of Fame career. And, you know, a lot of those guys continue to be good through their 40s. But there are cases like Thurman Munson and Kurt Flood where other things happen. But, you know, there are guys, you know, Chuck Knobloch. Joe Maurer and Ken Griffey to a, to a lesser extent, Nomar Garcia Parra, who just who were superstars and then hit 30 and just hit a wall, started getting hurt, you know, started losing bat speed. And if that's McCutcheon, I don't know if the Pirates can afford to wait on a good return if that's something that's likely enough to be scared about. Yeah. And I mean, going by baseball reference war, he was entering 2016. He had been like a top five player in baseball over the previous five seasons, six seasons also. And last season alone, he was the second worst qualified player again by that one stat and single season defensive stats and caveat, caveat, etc. But he was pretty bad across the board. It was kind of an across the board decline. He was significantly worse on offense. He had a terrible defensive season as far as we can tell from single season defensive stats. He was a much worse base runner. And he just kind of looked older and slower, and it wasn't really clear whether that was an undisclosed injury, whether obviously he's had knee problems, so he's 30 now. Is this the sort of thing that you bounce back from? It's hard to say, or is this just going to be a a chronic condition and he's never going to be the old Andrew McCutcheon again? I I did see some recent research by Mitchell Lichman, the sabermetrician co-author of the book, and he pointed out that it doesn't really matter if you've been consistent all the years leading up to a single season or you were good and then you had a a terrible down year like McCutcheon did. Players in both groups are just as likely to hit their projection according to the projection system. So Mm. that would support the idea that this could just be a fluke and he could just bounce back, if not all the way, at least to a place where he is a a very productive player. That's one of the reasons why I think this trade makes so much sense for the Nationals, like maybe not as much as they've been rumored to be giving up. And we'll take those rumors, like I said, for what they're worth. But like they need a center fielder badly. And yeah. I don't know that Andrew McCutcheon is one. But. Well, I mean, he's better than Michael Taylor. He's better than yeah. Danny Espinosa at shortstop 
with Trey Turner in center field. So yes, even if he's a bad defensive center fielder, and you, you know, Harper and Worth are both pretty good athletes. They can pick up a little bit of that slack. They were doing okay with Ben Revere out in center. So I mean, yeah. Revere stopped hitting too. So yeah, McCutcheon, I mean, his defensive stats have been pretty lousy for a few years now. And that was kind of magnified by the fact that the Pirates had two of the best corner outfielders in baseball also. So it seemed like McCutcheon was playing center largely because he was face of the franchise, Andrew McCutcheon, even though he was maybe the worst defensive outfielder of the group. But yeah, I mean, he's probably not like Shinsu Chu out there, although the stats say he was last year. But but yeah, I mean, you could put him out there and move Trey Turner back and and that makes sense. And McCutcheon should be better. So I guess it just comes down to whether you think there is such a thing as selling low anymore. I mean, are teams too smart for there to be buying high and selling low? I mean, everyone's kind of looking at the same sort of projection systems these days. It seems like just about every front office has kind of a cookie cutter GM with the same background who analyzes players in a similar way. So I don't know whether if the Pirates do decide to trade him now, it is a sign that they don't expect him to bounce back because if you were confident that he was going to be superstar McCutcheon again, why not hold on to him for half a season? I mean, if you hold on to him for half a season, then every day that goes by, there's less team control of McCutcheon remaining. And so it's just a question of whether he is going to restore his value so much that it outweighs that that's the the big thing because i mean he's got the one year left and then the option and he's gone and austin meadows if he's not ready now will be ready soon and that'll hold the fort until particularly if you get a guy like robles back then just because of how unlikely it was going to be for the the pirates to be able to lock him up like there are two scenarios either he bounces back to well i guess there are infinite scenarios but the two extremes are either he bounces back and wins another mvp with the nationals in which case the pirates weren't going to be able to re-sign him anyway or he absolutely craters and whatever they get for him winds up looking smart in the long term and they've got you know having meadows in the pipeline i think makes that a little easier to swallow because i mean yeah. he's the face of the not only bringing the team back after 20 years of not making the playoffs but like he's the biggest star that franchise has had since barry bonds yeah and we know what happened to barry bonds this time i guess that's true so, well if yeah. andrew mccutcheon comes back you know he goes to washington his head's 14 sizes bigger <laughs> in 2019 then right we can revisit this topic yeah i don't know if the correct takeaway from this either way i don't know if the takeaway is oh the pirates are a bad franchise and and they don't spend i mean that might be true but but I don't know whether the McCutcheon trade, if it happens, is a good example of that because they are a team that maybe has to do this. I mean, unless you think, well, they're close enough, they're likely to be a, a wild card contender. There's no reason to think they couldn't be. And if you think McCutcheon is going to be a pretty good player even, then maybe their chances to win in the next year or next two years are better with him than not with him. On the other hand, you have to think about what happens beyond the next two seasons. So I think it's a defensible trade if they decide to deal him, at least in principle, without just saying, oh, the Pirates don't spend. They don't put money into the team. And I I mean, they don't, but to a certain certain extent, like I'm willing to cut them a little bit of slack just because like this isn't Pittsburgh's a tiny city it's not a particularly large or wealthy market like this isn't the the Blue Jays acting or, or the A's or the Astros all of whom have sort of cheaped out in recent years like you know this is you 
can make a legitimate small market case for for Pittsburgh. So I'm willing to cut them a little bit of slack on. He's going to be 30 next year. He's in line for a big payday if he bounces back at all. So you know, I can I could see that. Yeah. I agree. One interesting thing you met, you invoked Shin Su Chu. I've just been <laughs> scrolling through his baseball reference similarity scores, uh-huh. and uh, it's a list of like I know you're literally playing this guy in center field, but are you sure you want to? <laughs> like, so choose choose number one. And uh-huh. Andre Ether's in there. Uh, Bobby Higginson's in there, which I forget if he actually ever literally played center field. But uh, Jacques Jones, uh, Matt Kemp, Ellis Burks, like all these guys, I guess, you know, good hit, bad defensive center field. It's going to I guess I shouldn't be shocked that the similarity score brought up players with similar statistical profiles. I just think it's kind of funny that it worked out that way. Speaking of one of those players, Matt Kemp, you want to devote a couple minutes here to the Braves who've been maybe the most active team of the winter so far? So I think like they might have just... I really like the the Dickey and Cologne signings in in tandem Mm -hmm. just because... We've seen what happens when the way I talk about it is the God of somebody's got to pitch those innings demands <laughs> <Right>. a sacrifice. <laughs> and if you don't have a if you don't have one to toss into the volcano, then shit gets ugly really fast. Yeah. So like, and it's, it's ironic that the two guys you pick to do that are like the two oldest players in Major League Baseball. Whatever. The, I mean, the two oldest pitchers. And yeah. yet they're Ari Dickey and Bartolo Colon, who have been extremely reliable in that department. So, right. I mean, yeah. I think worst case scenario, you've bought four. 400 innings of of at least keep the game moving for 20 million dollars i think that's for you know a team that's opening a new stadium probably wants to doesn't want to lose 105 games that's not bad i think the the only objection that i mean the primary objection that i see get tossed around that i don't really agree with is that why are they spending money if they're in this hard tank mode uh-huh. And I just I just wish we'd stop thinking about things in, in that binary fashion. Like the Dickie and Cologne and Jaime Garcia aren't gonna I don't know who they're blocking right now. And Yeah. Yeah, I mean most of their pitching prospects are, are still in the minors, still a, a rung or two down from the majors, so probably not I mean, I mean these all these guys they've acquired, Cologne and Dickey and, and Jaime Garcia are guys on one year deals essentially at this point. So and selling out for the first pick doesn't mean anything. And I mean, it means something in baseball. You want that bigger uh, bonus pool. But, you know, the Braves had the third pick and they didn't, uh, you know, they the guy they took three overall, I don't think was in the top 10 or 15 prospects, you know, because they're trying to move money around. So, you know, this is not like basketball where it's the difference between Ben Simmons and whoever went third in that draft, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was just scrolling down the Braves posts on MLB Trade Rumors, and they've been linked to everyone (laughs) this winter. Like, they've either been reported to have bid on or just been connected to in some fashion. Edinson Volquez, a bunch of catchers, Castro, Weeders, McCann, and I think John Capalella has been pretty open about wanting to get a catcher from outside Mm -hmm. because that's sort of the, the thing their system doesn't have. They've been linked to Chris Sale and Chris Archer and Sonny Gray and Jose Bautista. So if they start going down that route, then you might kind of question whether it's actually time to do that, because I don't think they are at a point where you can get them to good team by spring, even if you really tried. So it does kind of come down to the new stadium argument. And I don't know what to make of wanting to put a respectable team on the field in a new stadium year. I mean, you're you're going to get the honeymoon period probably regardless, right? I mean, 
people are going to come out to see your new stadium to some extent. And yes, maybe it's better if the team that they see on that day that they come to see the new digs isn't awful. I don't know how much it matters that it's, you know, a 75 win team instead of a 65 win team. Does that matter long term? Maybe they've done studies. I don't know. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they don't care enough about attendance at that stadium to build a parking lot. So, you know, (laughs) we'll take that for what it's worth. What I do think there's a usefulness to, I don't know where we are on like the veteran influence and culture of winning stuff. I think a lot of that is sort of post hoc bullshit, but, Mm -hmm. you know, just it would make sense sense like but a lot of chemistry stuff that we sort of poo-pooed because we couldn't measure it turned out to just make a lot of intuitive sense like if the team gets along it's going to play better like because every job I've worked at where I've liked my boss and I've liked my coworkers, I've tried harder and done better work and mm-hmm. it just doesn't feel like like Dansby Swanson's not going to try less hard if the team's 60 and 102 versus 75 and 87 you know on the other hand losing all the time is just demoralizing and you know it's probably not good for you and if all it costs is is money and you get to have R.A. Dickey around and Bartolo around then you know screw it let's do it I think that's those are two of my favorite uh, signings of the the offseason so far yeah I mean there can't be that many active pitchers who know more about pitching than those two guys who have not only been around forever but have had to adapt in unusual ways and are unique each in his own way so you would think that those guys could pass along a lesson or two not that every young Braves pitcher is suddenly going to have a great knuckleball or be able to throw fastballs 85% of the time and get by but but it would be cool if they did it sure would so yeah i mean none of the moves they've made so far the sean rodriguez signing we haven't mentioned i mean they're all fairly minor moves financially doesn't handicap them long term and if there is anything to the stadium effect or the veteran mentorship effect then that only makes it better so sure i have no problem with any of these moves yeah all right should we bring on mr passing oh one last thing this is what i i forgot about this for a second we were talking about the braves being involved in a lot of deals that haven't happened one thing that i personally don't want to keep track of but i want someone else to keep track of and tell me the results later is who was the runner-up on the big free agent signings this year like (laughs) Uh it it always seems like there's one team that's just oh you know the like the astros were were second on the cespedes thing right just the always the bridesmaid team you know we tried guys and i i would just be interested to see who the consensus runner-up was on big free agent deals so i'd like to see that too but i don't want it bad enough to keep track of it myself so All right, so let us now welcome in a former guest of the podcast, Jeff Passan, author of The Arm, MLB columnist at Yahoo Sports, who has been poring over the details of the CBA and tweeting really interesting tidbits like the fact that the players now get two seats per person on spring training buses. I think he was the first to report that, so congratulations (laughs) on the scoop, Jeff. Listen, I break all the important news. If you don't know this by now, uh, as as someone from Barstool Sports uh, said, I go to Ken Rosenthal for my baseball news and uh, Jeff Passan for my uh, teenage masturbation stories. <laughs> yeah, Rosenthal's kicking himself about uh, missing out on the spring training buses story. 
that would have been huge for you know a veteran of high school marching band and numerous bus trips that would you know i would have enjoyed a second seat yeah it's the little things in life so you've been tweeting all of these details that i think are important to people like us and probably important to a lot of people listening but qualifying offers and international markets and bonus pools and spending caps and all of these sort of minor things i guess in the grand scheme of things if you ask the average baseball fan what the takeaway is from the new cba it's that there's a new cba and yeah. that there is baseball for the next five years so just uh, i guess the the ten thousand foot takeaway and probably what the majority of baseball fans care about is that they will continue to have access to the sport that they like they will and and the you know i think where the cba really becomes an issue with fans is can my team be competitive in yeah. this environment and what does this do for me? And, you know, at first when the details started leaking out, I'm like, oh, my God, small market teams uh, are getting absolutely hosed here because mm -hmm. we didn't know that they were going to get preferential treatment with regards to the qualifying offer. For example, uh, if if you are getting revenue sharing and you lose a 50 million plus dollar qualifying offer player, you're going to get a pick after the first round if it's. Under $50 million, you're going to get a pick after the second round. If you're paying the luxury tax, on the other hand, and you lose one of those types of players, you get like a fourth round pick so uh, or a pick after the fourth round. So it really uh, it really behooves the small market teams there. And there's a, as, as one GM said, a, a very big lever when it comes to international money as well. Uh, international money is not determined by record or by uh, how you have uh, performed in the past. It is strictly market size. And so if you are one of those teams in a small market and or with low revenues that has gotten compensation picks in the draft in the past, those are going to be tied specifically to the international money and you're going to get more money to spend internationally than the larger market teams. That being said, there is going to be such an influx of money into baseball guys over the next five years uh, that it is setting up for something very interesting and potentially catastrophic come 2021 when it comes to a labor agreement because uh, I will be genuinely curious to see of the projected $15 billion in revenue by that point, just how much is going to the players when teams essentially have a $250 million or so soft cap on them and will be paying significant, absurd, almost dollar for dollar penalties on money spent over that. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, all the changes that we heard could happen in the CBA leading up to it, you know, very visible changes that even casual fans would have known about extra roster spots or the end to September call ups or an international draft or a shorter regular season. None of that ended up happening. And we were kind of led to believe by all the reports just over the past year or so that this was all going to be very smooth and everyone is making tons of money. So no one wants to jeopardize the status quo. And then in the last week or so, there were a bunch of reports about how things were getting testy and maybe there wouldn't be a deal and maybe a lockout actually was on the table. Do you know from your reporting kind of how close we ever got to that sort of thing? And, and were you worried as one of the most prominent newsbreakers? Were you kind of worried about being played by one side or another that would be trying to negotiate through your tweets, essentially? Yeah, I think I think you're always worried about that. And and I I wrote a column uh, on the day that the, the deal ended up going down that essentially 
was there to call bullshit on all of it because that's all it was. Uh, th- there was there was not a significant enough issue and not a not a deal breaker enough issue in these negotiations for them to be dumb enough or stubborn enough to risk it. And and look, I, I suppose when you stick 30 billionaires in a room together and embolden and empower a negotiator, you always have a chance or an opportunity for there uh, to be somebody who who loses his head and says, screw this, you guys are not negotiating in good faith, uh, we're going to lock you out. But, but a lockout at, at this point, it just didn't make any sense to me. In the past, they in the past they have gone uh, without agreements for for weeks, months at a time, sometimes just under the idea that okay, uh, the general parameters are in place, we're going to get this done. And, and I didn't see why now that would change at all. Just didn't make any sense to me. So, what were the actual negotiations themselves like? You know, in the since there probably wasn't going to be a lockout, was there any pressure to get it done uh, by midnight on Wednesday, or you know, for that matter? Who was in the room? You know, what was the what's the setup like? Do you know if it got heated at all? Insofar as you know what the room was like, what was it like? Yeah, I think I think everyone was just tired. Like honestly, that's that's what I got from everyone with whom I spoke last night saying I need to go get some sleep. I'm I'm gonna sleep until nine o'clock tomorrow morning, which uh is late for these guys because <laughs> I mean they had they had been up until five o'clock and, and this is this is not fun stuff. Like like you sit there and you, you think of uh, negotiations being like they are in the movies, right? Where you're given this, you're getting that. No, this is this is minutia, and this is boring, and this is economics, and this is all the crap that you do not want to deal with. But look, when you're when you've got a multi hundred page document that's essentially the constitution for your sport, you can't skimp on the details, and so. It just ends up being really difficult work to do for the lawyers that are involved, for the players, uh, and and there certainly were big name players uh, in there, and for for Major League Baseball and the union, which, if nothing else, uh, they I think they symbolically wanted to get it done by the deadline, so there weren't suddenly questions or this idea that there was saber rattling going on, which obviously. There was. And for the the most prominent non-lawyer in the room, Tony Clark, the executive director of the MLBPA, what do you think of of his performance? I've been sort of critical of him in the past, just from a PR perspective, but how do you think he did uh, handling this round of negotiations? You know, I, it's it's so tough to, to have like an instantaneous judgment on how did they do, because Look, I, I don't think I saw the, the unintended consequences of the qualifying offer being nearly what they were back in 2012 when they agreed to that system. And I don't think the people who negotiated honestly thought that they were going to be as egregious as they were. So to say, you know, Tony Clark won, Tony Clark lost at this point, I, I just don't know. I will say this, though. Uh, I was shocked that they gave up a hard cap uh, on international money. And that is a that has always been sacrosanct with the players. We do not have salary caps on anything. They've, I mean, they, they might as well have had it in May uh, in the draft in recent years. But uh, when you start limiting the avenues through which other teams can spend money, the idea you hope, if you're the MLBPA, I guess, is to get that money into free agency. But when there are those levers in place, uh, and we're talking almost a dollar for dollar tax on 240 to $250 million plus payrolls, 
teams that might spend that money in free agency could be loath to do it. And then all of a sudden you have a law jam. And the question is how many teams going forward are going to be willing to spend themselves up into that $200 million range where we've only in the past seen the Yankees uh, and the Dodgers and the Red Sox. I mean, are the Giants going to end up there? Uh, are the Phillies going to end up there? And are other teams uh, in those markets like 6 through 10 going to spend themselves up there? Because, frankly, you can't spend money internationally anymore. You can't spend money on the draft anymore without there being significant penalties. Can't spend money on Cuban players until they're 25. You can't spend money on Japanese players until they're 25. Where the hell are they going to spend their money right now? Is it going to go to the players where it ought? Or are we going to see a scenario in which the owners end up reaping a significantly larger amount of the revenues than they have in the past? And come 2021, you know, you have an all-out labor war because of it. Yeah, I guess they're banking on teams spending more on free agents, but what with analytical front offices that yep. maybe are, are more aware of the risks of spending on free agents and the benefits of signing young players to long-term extensions, that seems like maybe not the best bet to make. And and then you're just talking about that money going into owners' pockets. So, yep. <laughs> right, so, so why do you think this is all going to come to a head next time? We've had, it, it will have been 25 years of relative peace and there wasn't really any sign of a, a tremor building in this year's negotiation. So why is next time going to be the, the big one? I think it's for, for the reason I was talking about a little bit earlier. The, the expected revenue growth in baseball over the next five years is bigger than I think a lot of people, myself included, frankly, realize. I mean, they, I, I spoke with one person who thinks that by 2021, annual revenue in baseball is going to be $16 billion. That's going to be double what it was before the last collective bargaining agreement. I mean, it's gone up from about $8 billion to $10 billion over the course of these five years. A couple of people with whom I've spoken have said they, they see annual increases of a $1 billion. And a lot of that is due to Major League Baseball advanced media and uh, how the payments right now from BAM are about $40, $40 million per team per year. Uh, you know, projections are that they're going to have upward of $100 million per team coming from BAM. I mean, that's $3 billion generated in revenue from BAM alone per year. And, and that may be on the low side. It's amazing that Major League Baseball, uh, this sport that, that so many people think is anachronistic, and, and in some ways the sport itself is, has turned into this technological giant through BAM. And that whereas the NFL has had its national TV contract to buttress it, Major League Baseball has its technological side and it's been a an absolutely brilliant play and the, the question is just how much of that money is coming back to the players i think there's going to be an enormous fight over that and, and when you have when you have all of these teams like the dodgers like the yankees like the giants the red sox who can with those revenues afford 300 plus million dollar payrolls but aren't going to do it because they're they're getting docked on draft picks, for example. I mean, I, I reported this a little bit earlier, but if you if you sign a qualifying offer free agent and you're more than forty million dollars over the luxury tax, your first round pick drops ten spots. I guess my question is, if the union chooses to strike in 2021 or there's a work stoppage of any kind, how do they claw it back? Because what we've seen in other work stoppages, in the NHL in particular, 
is every time there's a lockout or a strike, the essentially the owners have this built-in public opinion boost because fans identify with the teams and, you know, to a certain extent, you know, a lot of the local media does as well. And in addition to that, the owners are not going to run out of money first if the if the league shuts down. So how does you know, how does the, the union start to claw back some of these losses? Are you just talking like a, in in general sense of the organized labor movement in America? This seems like a very good like. Well, this parallel. is why I'm so interested. In it. <laughs> I, I listen, listen. Me too. I grew up in a union household. I I get it. I I appreciate the power of unions. It's why I'm as fascinated by uh, the Major League Baseball Players Association's history as I am. It's been the best you and most powerful union in America. Something changed though. Uh, once Major League Baseball pulled its head out of its ass it, and, and got the right people in place, namely Rob Manfred, it recognized that the power in these negotiations often is with the corporations. Now, why Why are people on their side? I still, I, I don't get that. I never have and I never will. And this is not to say that Major League Baseball is is evil or is wrong, but you know, you root for players. And, and I, I guess you could argue, yeah, we root for jerseys too. But w- when you look at it, the players are the sport. They're the lifeblood of it. And if baseball doesn't have the best players, if a strike really goes on, maybe we'll suddenly see that this isn't baseball players being greedy. This is baseball players wanting what their fair share is. And I, I will write that every single day if it comes to that, because that point cannot be made often enough. Baseball is only as good as the people who play it, not the people who are running it. And do you know exactly what went down as far as the international players coming to the negotiations and trying to take some sort of stand on that hard cap? Yeah, they screwed themselves. I mean, I wish, like, I'd like to say that, that it's something else, but they rallied so hard against the international draft and they ended up with something worse. Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, they they get the same salary depression without the possible reforms that could have come from a draft, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think Major League Baseball was ready to go in there and at least put some money toward education and and toward reforming what the system in the Dominican Republic looks like. And, and the DR really is is the main part of this, not just because the most players come from there, but the most corruption is there. And a lot of the players, particularly the Dominican players, came in and said, this, this is an economy down there. This is a life down there, a lifestyle down there. And it's not just the trainers who you would be cutting off. Uh, it's all of the people in this, this very weird, shadowy economy that we've got going on down there. And I, I think they, they almost were, were sympathetic toward the devil. I, I don't understand why you're sticking up for a system that takes money out of the players' hands, that encourages a lack of education, that has been shown to have teenage kids, uh, preteens in some cases, being shot up with steroids. I mean, there, there are a lot of things that are right about baseball in the Dominican Republic, but there are a lot of things that are wrong, too. And they're not going to fix themselves. That, that's the 
biggest issue that I have there. They're not going to fix themselves. And I'm not saying Major League Baseball would have fixed them either, but I think you have a better shot when you have a 40 or $50 billion multinational corporation coming in and saying, okay, let's try and address this problem. And do you think this takes the international draft off the table forever? Or do you think Absolutely maybe next, not. Maybe I mean, next time the players are asking for it? <laughs> no, no. I mean, that's the thing. I, I think that next time around, Major League Baseball is going to ask for it and going to want to keep the cap limits in place too. So not uh-huh. only are you going to end up having a draft, you're probably going to have a draft with with actual uh, immovable slots. Worst of both worlds. Hmm. It's so depressing. <laughs> um, one, you were talking about unintended consequences earlier, and I saw this bandied about, I think from uh, somebody at Baseball America, that currently there are no... Uh, restrictions on on trading international free agents like you don't have to wait like you do with uh, with domestic draft picks is that something that you could see teams that aren't spending to the cap like you know signing players and then trading them immediate you're signing players on behalf of other teams and trading them immediately do you think that that or is there some other unintended consequence that just jumped out that, at you? that's a good question you can trade every single penny you have in international money so that that is actually part of it. You don't even have to sign the guys. You don't have to to because listen, signing guys is is a pain in the ass. I mean, it takes years of recruiting them, their family, their buscone. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of effort that you put into signing guys. So rather than do that, they'll just trade the money. You can you can trade yourself down to zero international dollars, and if you're a team that is trying to get an advantage, you can trade for up to 75% of what your pool is. Now, there are three levels of pools here, and I'm this is a nerdy podcast, so I can, I can get a little wonky here, right? Yes, by yeah, all means. I mean, yeah. <laughs> why not? Yeah. Just wanted your permission there. Uh, so there are three levels of pools. Every team starts off with $4.75 million internationally. The teams that have uh, a, a comp A draft pick, and, and that is determined by market size and revenue size. Generally, the 10 smallest teams or 12 smallest get compensatory picks there. The teams that have a comp A pick in any given year are given $5.25 million. And the teams that have a comp B pick are given $5.75 million. So if, for example, you find yourself in that comp B round and you have $5.75 million, you can trade for another $4.3 million in international money. So the most any team can have is a little bit over, yeah, it is a slight bit over $10 million in any given year, uh, which it's not an insignificant amount, but the Padres this year are going out and spending forty maybe $50 million on international free agents. That's what they would have potentially if they traded for every single piece that they could over the life of this contract. So it's almost like the all of the ways to be creative have seemingly been eliminated, which that's the one thing that doesn't bode well for those small market teams. It's, you know, if you're, if you're rebuilding, and and you want to go out and take your money away from the major league payroll and spend it on on amateur talent there's really no avenue to go do that anymore and with uh with regard to free agent compensation too that's been people have been talking about how that might affect the royals with their upcoming free agents i guess my question is less about that and more how few words can you distill the free agent compensation rules down to? <laughs> and can you do it without looking at your notes? 
I can do it without looking at my notes, but the few word part is going to be really difficult. <laughs> there are there are three. Let's put it this way: there are three levels on both sides of the qualifying offer. There are teams that get revenue sharing money. There are teams that are over the luxury tax threshold, and then there's the rest. The teams that get revenue sharing money get higher draft picks when their free agents leave, and forfeit lower draft picks when they sign them. The teams that are over the luxury tax threshold get a bunch of garbage when they lose a qualifying offer guy, forfeit quite a bit, uh, second round, a fifth round, and a million dollars in international money when they sign a guy. And that third team, the sort of in-between one, uh, you get a second round pick if you lose a qualifying offer guy who costs more than $50 million. And if you sign one of those, you forfeit a second round pick and half a million international money. That's about as concise as I can be with that. Do you think we're maybe one CBO, CBA away from completely unrestricted free agency? I mean, we keep getting Hell pieces no. rolled no. back no. and it keeps getting weaker and weaker, right? But uh, no. I mean, I should clarify, I don't mean everyone gets to be a free agent every year. I mean, once you are a free agent, there's no restriction. There's no compensation attached. What we have now seems much better than type A, type B and Elias classifications I, and that sort of thing. I so, don't think it's better than type A, type B at all no no i'd so much rather like people are are okay with just the most bizarre shit being thrown into a black box <laughs> if 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 you're told that the black box is legitimate like i go through this every time i watch a football game i think about how ridiculous it is that we trust the chain gang to measure 10 yards <laughs> Sure. You know, within the the accuracy of like a length of a chain. So I was totally cool with type A, type B, because they just said Elias is the Oracle. And from there, it's like one step. It's like two sentences for for all the compensation rules. And it's just gotten more complicated every single time. It's definitely gotten more complicated, but I think it's also probably gotten better for the players in this one limited area, at least. I mean, you had the the guys who had to wait till spring training to sign yeah, because of that's true because I, of it. But you, I mean, you at we, least can you we, know. Can we just can we just talk about something really important though? This is never going to happen. But baseball's entire system is is just such a piece of crap. And what they <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm serious. The fact that. The people who are making the most money are the ones who are past their prime is is the height of absurdity. It really is. And and what would be best for everyone is unrestricted free agency after four years. Because then the best players would get the best would get the most money, would get the best deals. You would be paying for the years that matter the most. It would it would, yeah. would de-emphasize drafting and player development. I understand that. And and that's the lifeblood of some teams. And and you could also argue that it would play into the bigger market teams because they would have more money to go out and pay guys. But they already do. There's nothing different about that. What what they should try to do and what they should be should have been trying to do for a long time is to redistribute the money where it belongs. And that is in the hands of the players who are likeliest to produce the value commensurate with what they're being paid. But if you do it this way, then you can have that out where the people who are, you know, who live and die by dollars per war are saying, oh, you shouldn't sign all these over 30 guys because they're just going to get worse. Meanwhile, they're the only the only people who can who like they're the only avenue where you can actually spend money to get better. So, I, I mean, know. yeah, 
you know that, but it's that's that's the frustrating part about it, though. When you're cutting off international dollars, when you're cutting off draft dollars, when you're cutting off the ability to spend in all these other places, and the only places the money can go really is in free agency, and you know free agency is a rigged ass market that sucks and that's not worth going into. I mean, at that point, why are teams even spending? Do you think we will see any more sort of outlier payroll teams? Like, will will there be a Dodgers or a Yankees every year that's above that threshold or far above other teams? Or has that been completely curtailed by the new policy? Great question. I think there will be a team out there that sees all of the other teams afraid to go out and spend and realizes that the marginal dollars it's spending uh, are going to make it that much better in an environment where teams may well be afraid to spend. I mean, I, I wonder what this does for uh, the class of 2018. You know, is Bryce Harper going to get a, a nine-year, $350 million contract? What's Manny Machado going to get at this point? Because if teams are going to be paying 20 30 40 50% on the dollars, up to 90%, uh, up to 95%, are they really going to go for those big ticket items like they might have in the past? Or does this turn into a class of one-year, $49 million contracts so they don't have to give up uh, draft picks? I, I would love that. <laughs> I'm serious. I, w- I, would, I yeah. would love that. I, I wish there were a player out there who was just a freaking mercenary and who just said, you know, got one big contract, made all the money he was going to need to for life, and, and just said, I'm going to go year to year. It doesn't matter where I go. It doesn't matter what it is. I'm just going to try and get the most money possible to show other players that this is what the ceiling is right now. And teams can argue all they want that it was only on a one-year deal. But once you have that AAV out there as a realistic thing, all of a sudden there's that psychological element that's going to come into play with owners who want to get guys. And that's how the money starts going up. It does seem as if there's a bit of an emphasis in this CBA on fatigue or rest. There isn't a reduction in the number of games, but it looks like there will be more off days and the disabled list now can be a 10-day stint as opposed to a 15-day stint. That's I don't know if that's something that favors either the players or the owners. It's more for the, the game as a whole, I guess, but it does kind of reflect a, a realization that baseball is really long. Yeah, <laughs> I guess is- yeah I, don't, I don't know if it favors players or owners i don't like i don't think that was a big thing for owners to give up but players definitely appreciate it yeah. players are certainly glad about it because they want every off day they can get and, and they deserve mm-hmm. they, they deserve it frankly i mean it's like playing baseball playing baseball is really difficult oh my child just got home is <laughs> yelling at me now <laughs> all right we can wrap this up shortly so one last thing you tweeted about the uh, ramifications for Shohei Otani who is uh, of course a favorite of ours and this probably means that we won't see him for a while longer yeah we're not going to see him until like 2019 which really sucks <laughs> I mean I don't have to tell you guys but yeah uh, this is this is one of those things where I just wish the people looking around the room and, and I think some of them did would have said to each other, but what about Otani? Because that's <laughs> like that's how all of us feel. And I, you know, I, I was going to be fascinated to see how much money he got paid anyway, and if he got used as a two-way player, and and how all that panned out. But uh, 
Now we just get to appreciate him from afar for a few more years because if he decided to come over, the maximum he could get paid was that $10 million or so we were talking about until he's 25 years old. You can't argue that it's short-sighted based on just one player, but the, the fact to me is if you are going to limit the number of international players that come in to Major League Baseball, there has to be some sort of lever going in the opposite direction where you're going to reward domestic players for it. And and I'm sorry, but they haven't done that with amateurs. They haven't. The, the number one slot figure is, is the same size it was in 2012. Like, they've gone backward as far as domestic amateurs go. So I'm not quite sure where the, you know, where the evening out of that comes into play. All right. Well, we can wrap it up there. At least we uh, have an all-star game that doesn't count or counts less than it already didn't count. So that's something. But enjoy the next five years of baseball peace, because if Jeff is right, it's going to be the last piece we have for a while. But we'll see. But uh, you can read all the details in Jeff's columns, which are up now at Yahoo Sports. And you can read about how baseball is doomed five years from now. You can find him on Twitter at Jeff Passan. Jeff, thank you very much. Well, as always, my voice. Thanks for having me. All right, so that will do it for today, and next week will probably be busier than this one was, I would imagine. Uh, unless we strike. Yeah, right. The negotiations for whether there would be off-season ringer MLB shows were much quicker and uh, less contentious than yeah. the CBA ones. It was just sort of, hey, we doing episodes this off-season? Sure. All right. So next week, we're going to probably be talking winter meetings, so I think that we will do an episode after the winter meetings are over and just do a big wrap of all the moves that were made or were not made so you have that to look forward to and otherwise we hope you enjoy your weekend good talking to you sir all right likewise